0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Well, hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as he typically does when we record podcasts, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland.
1: You enter a dark room that smells of mold. One sputtering torch is the only light source. A rough-hewn oak table sits at the center of the floor, surrounded by overturned chairs. On the table is a spoiled banquet left untouched for at least several days. As you glance around, you hear a quiet click, the sound of a trap going off. Quick, roll your saving throw! How'd I do? Uh, you, 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 have an, you, you took an arrow to the knee, so you will now be a guard.
0: So I can no longer be an adventurer? Not like me. Oh.
1: So we are today going to talk about the history of massively multiplayer online role-playing games. And it all actually stems back... To what I was just alluding to, and all of uh, you guys out there who are big uh, D&D fans picked up on it, I'm sure, immediately, we're talking about Dungeons and & Dragons. And it's important to talk about Dungeons & Dragons first to understand why MMORPGs exist at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, there were uh, some computer role-playing games but they weren't like what we think of today, and, yeah, and then and really, they came around right about the same time as d and d took off
1: yeah so let's let's start with um let's start with d and d first of all to kind of explain what's going on so
0: we're not we're not even talking about uh d and d online, we're actually talking about specifically about uh the pencil and paper and dice and all that, yeah. jazz,
1: game screens, et cetera so back in nineteen seventy four uh there were some 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 guys who had created a a war game, a miniatures war game called Chainmail. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, war games are – they've been around for a while, right? Yeah. It's where you essentially have uh, uh, figures that represent military units.
0: Or you might even have uh, what they used to call chits, those little pieces of cardboard that had the little number. They kind of look like um, – if you haven't seen these uh, old-style – uh, things, they actually sort of look like the periodic table. They have the yeah. picture of your unit and how many hit points it has and all that
1: stuff. Right. So the idea is that you would try and uh strategorize your opponent mm-hmm. playing on a map. And uh, the map might have even topographical elements that would in- uh, indicate how you might have an advantage or disadvantage in a given situation depending upon your unit and where your enemy is located. Right. And anyway, the whole game was this idea of, you know, Matching wits against an opponent. Well, chainmail kind of brought that down a little bit. Chainmail was an idea of using smaller units in very specific circumstances, like say in a castle or a dungeon. Mm-hmm. But then the game creators, among them a certain Gary Gygax, I feel did, like I've heard that name before. Yeah, uh, decided that what if we were to, to to change this? So instead of playing, you know, controlling units, you control a specific character someone who has a personality, a background, uh goals, motivations, uh they have their own abilities and and their own disadvantages and you were to take on this role within an adventure. And that was the where the whole role playing game idea kind of spawned out of. You would have someone who is in charge of explaining all the environments and taking care of all the game mechanics on the back end that would be the dungeon master or game master. Mhm. And then the players would each control a character and would try and uh, pursue certain goals dependent upon the game itself and that character's personality. And this was a kind of a radical idea at the time, back in 1974. And uh, it caught, I, I guess you could say it was a popular idea, particularly among uh, high school and college students. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Now, uh, your characters, when you, when you first start, there there are some elements of chance involved here. Yeah. Um, when you first create your character, uh, you roll the dice to de- to determine what the uh, the character's characteristics are.
1: Yeah, their attributes. Yeah,
0: like um, uh, for example, strength, how strong that person is, or or how much dexterity that person has, yeah. the ability to get out of the way when somebody's swinging an axe at their head.
1: Now I haven't played D and D for about twenty years, but I remember that it used to range between three and eighteen for normal characters. Well, yes, because
0: you roll three three, six six sided sided dice. Um, The thing is, um, with the uh, uh, you know that that's one aspect of it too. But the uh, the dungeon master or game master would use a screen. To hide the the dungeon or or whatever it is that you were going adventuring in, so you didn't really know. Unlike those other games where you could see there were mountains ahead of your characters, you could go around the mountains. Yeah. Uh, when you came, uh, you'll be riding six white horses. But right. meanwhile, um, in, in a dungeon and in D and D, you didn't necessarily know. And this is the difference in a role playing game and those other games. You are actually pretending to be, you know, this character. So. Uh, one of the first things I had to learn, and I, when I started playing d and D, I I was, I think, eight years old or nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to learn that you can't see what's going on. So you have to remember to ask, what do I see? What do I hear? You know, yeah. and, and the dungeon master might not necessarily tell you, you hear the click of a trap unless you ask, I'm like, well, right. you just heard a clicking noise. Uh oh.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, that, clicking noises in D and D were never a good thing. No. Um, but but you, you also you also had different play styles, right? You had people who would play very achievement oriented. Yeah. Right? They they mm-hmm. wanted to they wanted to get whatever the goal was, and it was less about the experience of being a character. Uh, and then you had people who really kind of embraced the idea of role playing, being someone else, and right. to really kind of. Uh, try and, and drive that aspect, uh, more than the, the rules necessarily. So you, you kind of had these two types, subcategories of players. Rule, rule players that were all about the, uh, statistics and, and getting the good roles and getting the best equipment for their character because it would guarantee their success, that kind of thing. And role players who are more interested in the personality aspects. Most, most players fall somewhere within that. Spectrum between those two. Mm -hmm. Same thing holds true, by the way, of MMORPGs. So the only reason I even mention all of that is so that we have the foundation to build upon – so that we understand once we get into MMORPGs why they're a big deal.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, computer role playing games have been around, like I said, about as long as uh, Dungeons and Dragons have, because that yep. was, they, they sort of went around at um, the rise of personal computers on the desktop uh, right, right about the same time, the, the mid to late 70s. And,
1: and they got popular in high schools and colleges, which were breeding grounds not just for role-playing games, but for computer sciences.
0: Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, The thing is, uh, one of the reasons that uh, that Dungeons & Dragons and other role-playing games took off was because it gave you an opportunity to play a game with your friends. Yes. You weren't sitting at home on one machine interacting with... The game on the machine. I mean, that was fun too. I I like playing uh, those games by myself. Also,
1: yeah. we usually call those CRPGs, computer role playing games. Yeah. They don't necessarily have a multiplayer element to them,
0: right? But uh, but uh, the the multiplayer games, both uh, on paper and and computers, give you an opportunity to uh, go through the experience with other people, right? And uh, which which can be fun because you never know what those other people are are going to do. And it also gives you this feeling of uh, camaraderie. Yes. uh, Esprit de corps, if you will.
1: And and depending upon the game, it may allow certain players to band together and oppose other players. So you can even have elements within the game where you've got a struggle between two groups of players. And if the game is designed properly, meaning that it's a dynamic element to it, you might even be able to have players actually influence the course of the game's world, right? Which is pretty tricky because you know that's a very delicate balance to to create when you are a developer. You don't want to make it so easy to affect the game's world that it is uh, uh, that that one group of players essentially dominates and makes all the determinations of where the game's world is going. At the same time, you don't want it to be so static that it feels like no matter what you do, you don't influence the outcome. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. really tricky balance.
0: Well, I would uh, I would argue that one of the things that makes uh, online role playing games so much fun uh, is not necessarily the high graphics elements. I think the 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 element of play is yeah. is most important. That's one of the things. I mean, you don't see these things these fantastic uh, animations of spells and and uh, uh, sword play and whatever else that you might happen to be engaged in. Uh, when you're playing a tabletop role-playing game, yeah, you have to imagine you have... it. What? Imagine it?
1: Yeah, it's this thing that we used to do before there was the internet.
0: Well, I I do love uh, looking at the amazing graphics work of of some of these game studios now, but um, you know, the very first uh, online role-playing games were text based.
1: Yeah, in fact, we can uh, talk a little bit about them. Uh, first of all, uh, I want to uh, define a couple of terms for the very earliest games. Right. Uh, Some of them were built on something called PLATO, Mm -hmm. which is uh, an acronym for Programmed Logic for Automated Teaching Operations. Mm -hmm. Here's the funny thing. This sucker
0: predates pretty much all of this stuff that we're talking about.
1: PLATO actually came out before D&D, the the tabletop game, came out.
0: Yeah, early 60s actually. But
1: but PLATO was all about – it was supposed to be an educational platform. Yeah. Which of course meant that students immediately figured out ways to play games on it. (laughs) And… Like almost yeah. immediately. Yeah. Like, this is for education. I want to kill stuff. So um, the, the University of Illinois built Program Logic for automated teaching operations. So it's a, a platform that could run on networked computers. Yeah. Now, these computers are networked to one another. They are not networked into a larger network. Yeah. Think LAN party, not the internet. Right. And uh, – Uh, immediately you had students start to figure out ways to create games because it meant that they could link it to other students and have a social experience on a computer, Mm -hmm. which uh, just shows you that, you know, we are very social creatures. The, you know, first thing we start looking at is how can we use this machine to connect to other people. So that's one acronym you need to know. Another one is MUD, which stands for. I know all
0: about that.
1: Multi user dungeons.
0: Oh, those two.
1: Not, not what happens when you add. Water to Earth, um, which just makes me almost go off on a brack tangent, but I'm not going to. <laughs> what happened to the water? Uh, so, uh, also with mud come a couple of other um, uh, uh, topics uh, or a couple other acronyms: Moo and Mush. Have you Ooh, heard about those? Yep. So a Moo is a Moo is an acronym with that has an acronym in it because Moo stands for Mud Mm object-oriented. MUSH stands for Mud User Shared Hallucination or Shared Hack or Shared Habitat or Shared Holodeck. It really depends on who you ask. They're they're all pretty similar. But but these are basically the frameworks within which people built games. Now, back in 1975, there was a game that came out called Colossal Cave Adventure. Yes. Sometimes just called Adventure.
0: By William Crowther.
1: And it was a single-player text-based game, but it was what created the foundation for some of the multi-user games that came after it. Uh, In 1977 and uh, published in 78, a game called Moria came out, and now Moria was built on top of Plato. Uh, there were other games that came out before Moria, but Moria is one of the more famous ones. And it allowed up to ten players to get together in a party and go on a dungeon crawling adventure. Uh, and it was created with these, these uh, very simple vector graphics. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, um, you know, you, you see like the green wall with a green door outline on it, and you would push a command that would knock the door open, and then you might have an encounter afterward, or you might find treasure, that kind of stuff. The interesting thing about it was not only did it allow up to ten people to play, that that itself was interesting, but it also uh, created the dungeons um, every time you played. Yeah. So the dungeons were not pre-generated; they generated dynamically when you would play the game. So you would never necessarily have the same experience twice because the dungeon would be randomly created when you started.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and uh, so that that was sort of an early example of how people were trying to kind of port the experience of playing Dungeons & Dragons or a game like D&D right. to a computer environment and not have it be a single player playing with computer-generated characters, although there are plenty of examples of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1978, a fellow named Roy Trubshaw created the very first multi-user dungeon, and it was called MUD. That's why we call them MUDs, because yep. he made it. It was um, He was in Essex University, and so MUD became the generic term for games that were built in this way. Um, and it became very, very popular. And then eventually, again, these were on network computers. Mm-hmm. There was no internet yet. But Trubshaw connected his game to the ARPANET in 1980. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, you had essentially the the, the ancestor to massively multiplayer online role playing games because it made it gave access to people beyond just folks who had uh, uh, the um, access to those specific computers within Essex University to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my uh, my
0: notes have the game down as being called Dungeon, D U N G E N. Oh yeah, uh huh.
1: Yeah, um, I have it as it was called Multi User Dungeon. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, I I'm, yeah, okay. So, um, but but the same same thing. I mean, that's that is where Mud came from. They probably, yeah. I'm sure, it was called Dungeon just as uh, for shorthand. Yeah. Uh, the next one I have doesn't uh, pop up till 1980. Do you have anything you wanted to mention before I go to that? No. Okay. So, in the University of Virginia, there were a couple of classmates, John Taylor and Kelton Flynn, mm-hmm. and they created a game called The Dungeons of Kesmai, which was a six-player game, and it was also inspired by Dungeons and Dragons and it used ASCII graphics to represent elements of the game. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's making me think of some of the old games I used to play. And they also founded a company in uh, 82 called the Kesmai Company. A few years later, they oh, I'll mention it when it happens, but they would come up with another game that would be uh, kind of a, a, a big influence on online role-playing games in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 84, you had a fellow named Mark Peterson who wrote The Realm of Angmar and uh, – uh, It was originally a kind of an offshoot of another game called The Scepter of Goth. And uh, in 94, Peterson rewrote it and adapted it for MS-DOS, which I don't know how many of you guys remember MS-DOS. That's pre-Windows. But that was the – that formed the basis of a game that ended up being found on a lot of bulletin board systems so if you guys heard our episode about BBSs, mm-hmm. you know that there used to be these communities – still aren't in, in many cases. But there were these communities that were housed on individual, private individuals' computers, mm-hmm. although you could also have companies that do this too. But you could have a private individual – who would open up their computer to allow other people to dial into their computer to access files and play games. Mm-hmm. This is one of the games that was found on a lot of BBSs. And if the BBS would allow multiple people to call in at once, if they had multiple lines that would allow for that, then you could have people play this game simultaneously. Um, and in 85, uh, you had the introduction of Mirror World, which was a multi-user dungeon that could be run on a home computer as opposed to some you know, research institution or university's computer.
0: Yeah, I uh, remember the modem speeds back then. That was
1: slow. Yeah, yeah. I've got an interesting uh, thing to mention in, in 91 about that. Uh, 85 was also the year that the Kesmai Corporation came out with Island of Kesmai. Just again, uh, Kelton Flynn and John Taylor, mm-hmm. and this ran on CompuServe.
0: Yeah, I've heard of them.
1: Yeah, so it was the first commercial multiplayer online role-playing game. I don't think you could call it massive because no. it had a limit to how many players could play—one hundred, no that's, more than one hundred.
0: Compared compared to the earlier games, that's pretty massive.
1: Yeah, right? compared to you know the six. old the older Kesmai game where six people could play, or even the the uh, the. the the 10-player uh, Moria game, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, I think it's almost 10 times that. Wow. So <laughs> I'm not that stupid, people. Almost, but not quite. In 1991, an interesting game comes out. Yes. Interesting for a couple of reasons. Because for one thing, you can confuse it with another game by the same name. Neverwinter Nights by Don Daglow and Catherine Matega comes out. has no connection at all to the Neverwinter Nights game that came out by BioWare. But this game ran on AOL. and I've the, heard of it. No, <laughs>
0: I used that joke already.
1: They And AOL used uh, a, a, an interesting pricing mechanism. So this is a commercial game. You had to pay to play. And the way it worked was that you would pay $6 an hour to play this game at 300 baud. And, you,
0: and when we're talking hours <laughs> – that's
1: about how long it would take to load to, some yeah, of Yeah, to make a move. Uh, for $12 an hour, you could play at 1,200 baud. Hey. That's just screaming fast, right? Good grief. It's,
0: it's screaming all right. I don't know if it's screaming fast. And
1: this was the, the first graphics-based MMORPG. Uh, now, do you have any you want to mention at all before we get to 96? Because then I've got the biggie.
0: Well – I, I figured that we were going to talk about the the Ultima series of games, right? Because they were important for uh, the role-playing game world, but they weren't massively multiplayer,
1: right? And that yes, that will definitely lead into a very important discussion. So Ultima, uh, while while we've got this development over here with the multi-user games, there's still quite a bit of work being done in single-player computer role-playing games. Oh,
0: absolutely, they were huge,
1: and one of the uh, one of the people. Who was really spearheading this movement. We've actually, we did an entire episode on him. Richard Garriott, mm-hmm. uh, the Lord British of the Ultima series. He uh, founded the Ultima series. The first game was Alkalabeth, which, uh, then eventually, av- which he was in college at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he actually dropped out of college because his computer game business took off so well. Uh, his dad, by the way, astronaut. Yes. His dad's an astronaut. He drops out of college, makes millions of dollars.
0: But, uh, yeah, they were, he was working with, um. Don't
1: take that as a lesson, kids. I'm not <laughs> saying drop out of college.
0: Your mileage may vary. Yes. Um, yeah, he, uh, was talking in, in 1990 and 91 about the possibility of an online version of Ultima.
1: Yeah. Now, Ultima was a series that he created after his first, uh, success in, yes. in computer role playing games. And in Ultima, Uh, The original Ultima games were kind of your standard hack-and-slash RPG-type games where you took on the role of a a character and uh, tried to defeat some sort of massively evil villain. But after Ultima 3, Richard Garriott took uh, an interesting turn. He really began to do something new with computer role-playing games. He created the concept of – well, it didn't create the concept, but he incorporated the concept of morality. And how your choices can affect gameplay. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in Ultima Four, you took on the role of a character called the Avatar, who was supposed to be the exemplification of all the best traits in the world. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to be the, uh, the paragon of virtue. And if you um if you played like a nasty person and you you know stole stuff and you killed innocents, you could not win the game. Mm-hmm. It was impossible to win the game because in order to win the game you had to make lots of sacrifices and and be virtuous. Uh and then this sort of gave a real shot in the arm to his series. I mean it was already popular. Yeah. But then it became crazy popular. And so he continued to develop the games and uh uh, as the multi-user uh, craze continued with fairly primitive games compared to some of the uh, the standalone games on computers mm-hmm. he began to turn his eye toward developing an online version of this ultima world yeah now in the meantime just before he this while while this this whole plan for an online version of ultima was in the earliest development phases. Another game in '96 came out called Meridian 59, mm-hmm. and that was developed by a company called 3DO, which yes. no longer exists. Um, they were
0: they were something of an innovator for their time. Yes, um, but if you've never heard of them, it's it's because they've been. Uh, closed for, for quite a while. It's,
1: it's one of the first massively multiplayer online role-playing games ever released by a major publisher. Yeah, And and it, a lot of the things that we associate with MMORPGs began with this game. For one, it had a monthly subscription for a flat rate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you would pay a, a flat rate each month to play. Uh, it had a 3D first-person view of the world and a fantasy setting. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, not all... In fact, a lot of MMORPGs do not take the first person view. Several of them take a third person view where you're either behind or, or over the character you're playing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, 3DO ran this game, uh, but then it shut down. The 3DO shut down. Yeah. In 2003. It ceased to be. But,
0: I, actually, they, they closed the game on August 31st of 2000 from what I have. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. well, the game itself still continued because what happened was in February 2010, Uh, Meridian 59 was turned over to the original technical developers, which were uh, uh, a couple of brothers who have opened the game to the public for no charge to the player. So it's running on two servers in the United States. But uh, yeah, I I love the name of the
0: company though. Near Death Studios? Yeah.
1: (laughs) Nice. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's just a flesh wound. The the game is... (laughs) Uh, hobbling along when it's running on two servers yeah but it's but it's interesting that it's still you know in this shows that the people who adopt these games can be yeah. very passionate and even when um, a studio itself is in financial trouble people want those games to continue which is somewhat problematic because how do you keep this going when the in order to run the game you actually do have to spend real money mm-hmm. i mean because mm-hmm. you're talking about electricity costs you're talking about Server costs. You're talking about, you know, you might have to have space for that machine. It's, uh, it's tough, and um, that's not the only time that has happened by yeah. a long shot. But uh, so at that same time, Richard Garriott and the folks over at Origin and later Electronic Arts were working on Ultima Online.
0: Yeah, Ultima Online was apparently originally supposed to go on. Um, now, keeping in mind. Uh, the time frame we were originally talking about for that, when I met, when I brought it up, uh, we were very much in the online service provider world, and uh, Sierra had its own network it was working on, but they they ended up shutting it down, um, and uh, Ultima Online became a an internet MMORPG, yeah, which uh, was probably better for uh, for everyone involved because it gave you a much wider audience.
1: I got to actually see this game in action when it was in its alpha build mm-hmm. before it even opened up to the beta world. Uh, and because uh, um, Richard Garrett came down to a science fiction convention that I go to a lot, DragonCon in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So uh, Richard Garrett used to be a very frequent guest at DragonCon. And in fact, he and I kind of struck up a bit of a friendship and we would chat about the games and stuff. And he would show me uh, the games that were in development, including Ultima Online And it was really a neat thing. It was a, it was a kind of a new idea. It was building on that work that other people had done in, in previous generations of multi-user dungeons, but on a huge scale and also created a much more dynamic world. So Ultima Online had a world where, in theory anyway, you had uh, ecosystems that could actually be affected by player behavior. Mm -hmm. So for example, let's say that you are in a forest. And you decide one day that you are the bunny slayer and you go on a bunny slaying rampage and you hack and slash every bunny you can find. Well, there's a limited number of bunnies yeah, for a given amount of time. And as you start slaying these bunnies, there are other consequences. For example, there are also wolves in the forest, and now all the bunnies are gone, which means that the food source for the wolves is are, are gone. You know, they, they no longer have their normal food source, so they might actually venture out of the forest and start to attack villagers. So you could actually inadvertently, while slaying bunnies, as any good hero would want to do, bring terror and 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 hardship upon a village because these wolves are now attacking people. Mhm. Uh all, on the flip side, if you were, you know, wolf's bane and you were going out into the woods to slay every single wolf you saw, the bunny population might explode and bunnies are everywhere, almost like tribbles. Yeah. Uh that's just a small example of what was dynamically supposed to happen in the world. Uh and and it, it to some degree, it did work like that, although there were definitely some issues as well. It didn't always work exactly the way people had planned, and also player behavior really, really changed that world quite a bit.
0: Yeah, if you, uh, <laughs> if if you've played recent MMORPG or more recent MMORPGs and and been annoyed at the fact that there are people who are Playing the game just apparently to make other people miserable. Called Griefers. Yeah. Uh, that started pretty much with the dawn of MMORPGs. Yeah.
1: Now, there were people who would lurk just outside of starting areas and waylay characters, and uh, sometimes they would just do it just to do it. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. They knew you probably were not carrying anything of value on you. There was no reason to really attack you, there was no real benefit, and yet they would do it because. They were jerks. Um, it, meanwhile, uh, and there were a lot of other problems. There were people who were finding ways to cheat the system. In fact, there was a monumental event. So the game launches in 97. Yeah. Well, August of 97, the game has its first monumental event. August 8th, 1997. You oh, know what happened? on the 9th. Oh, was it 9th? Yeah. Oh, I've got 8th. But, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, there was an assassination. Yes, of Lord British himself. Now – Here's the thing. Lord British is – normally in the game was invulnerable to attack. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, there was an in-game appearance of Lord British that happened during the beta testing of Ultima Online. So the game had not gone gold yet. It was still – but it was open to players who were in the beta program. Right. And uh, so Lord British was showing up during uh, an event in order to kind of stress test the servers. The idea was that if Lord British is there, then most of the beta players are going to be logged on and this will help the um, origin and uh, determine how well their servers can hold up to the strain of a lot of people playing at one time. Yes. Uh, and then depending upon whom you ask, uh, something went terribly wrong. Either it was a computer issue or a human issue. And it's kind of, uh, Kind of hard to uh, to say what. Although I think I know what really happened. What happened is that the server crashed. Mm -hmm. Server reboots. Right. Richard Garriott is there as Lord British. Server reboots and resets Lord British, turning off his invulnerability flag. Richard Garriott does not think he need uh, does not realize this and does not turn the invulnerability flag back on. And then there was a character called Reigns, who testing out this theory. Attacked Lord British and killed him. <laughs> and he was also – he was not the, – the the player behind Reigns was already kind of notorious on yeah. the servers because he was known for exploiting bugs as opposed to reporting bugs.
0: Well, he was a uh, software consultant from, yeah. from what I understand.
1: So um, uh, he was also supposedly one of the earliest griefers in the <laughs> beta program. So he was – one of these people I was talking about in a way, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there were he, he was already kind of on thin ice. So that it was an amusing situation and it was an irritating situation, and uh, they, you know, the the game also even had little humorous responses and, and references to this uh, when it went gold. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that was one of those memorable moments in MMORPG history. So Ultima Online ends up being the very first MMORPG to hit 100,000 subscribers. It's really successful early on in in the in these early early days of the MMORPG.
0: Yeah, but the next one that I have is it's going to put it to shame even.
1: Are you talking about the one from Verant Interactive, later Sony Online Entertainment? That would be that it. Premiered in 1999. Yes. Evercrack? Yes. Also known as EverQuest. Or NeverRest. Or NeverRest, yeah. Lots of different names for this. Yeah, this was, again... And what's also interesting is so far, Meridian 59, Ultima Online, EverQuest. All three fantasy-based role-playing games. Yes. Uh, EverQuest launches and it is a massive success. Uh, It was in development at the same time as Ultima Online. had a very different look from Ultima Online, although similar setting in the sense of it's the sword and sorcery realm. And uh yeah, it was one of those games where eventually if you were talking about an MMORPG, you were talking either about Ultima Online or EverQuest. Yeah. And EverQuest's popularity skyrocketed. That that might
0: be a uh an, an understatement in yeah. some ways. because and, and, people would play it for hours and hours and and, and lose track of time and yep there were divorces and
1: well and also it was you know they had the benefit of seeing what was not working on ultima online yes that's true and building out their world so that it could limit these problems as much as possible some problems are hard to get around because they are human generated and it's hard to create systems that prevent human behavior from happening Mm -hmm. Uh, humans are very good at figuring out ways to get around systems so that they can be jerks uh Oh, it's just true. (laughs) We're, we're, you know, we're like, hey, I really wanted to, uh, to, to do this one thing. The game's not letting me, but I bet if I try it this way, it'll work. Uh, so yeah, 99 EverQuest launches, but another game also fairly popular, not nearly as popular as EverQuest launches called Asheron's Call. Yep. Yep. That one was from Turbine Entertainment later on, uh, taken over by Microsoft and Asheron's Call, uh, another fantasy game
0: yeah yeah it had uh it had sort of a different system though uh to it it was sort of a um a loyalty system mm-hmm. where you would basically um there would it, it was sort of like a uh lord and vassals kind of situation where um the lord was expected to be good to his i, I assume there were ladies too uh but basically in in this role the person at the top of the pyramid is supposed to be expected to be good to their people um for which they would be rewarded and yes. the the people would be able to support their uh the the person at the top of the pyramid. Yes. So it was
1: supposed to kind of like feudalism.
0: Yeah, it was really yeah. supposed to work out in in the game and apparently it was sort of a limited success. But yeah. it was a different a very different kind of system than than anyone else had. had
1: at yeah, that there point. there are a couple of games that really tried to break the mold. Mm-hmm. Um and that was one of them and and they they've all met with varying degrees of success. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, 2000 was an interesting year because that's when LucasArts announced uh, that it was developing a game that uh, initially I was very, very eager to get my hands on called Star Wars Galaxies. Oh, Um, I remember that, yes. So it was announced in 2000 and the original launch date was going to be in 2001, Mm -hmm. but it was delayed until 2003. Uh, The game – Uh, The setting of the game, first of all, set in the Star Wars universe, obviously. But the actual setting of the game was set after the events of Episode Four, often just called Star Wars, also known as uh, A New Hope. Yeah. So A New Hope just ended, so Death Star's blown up. That's when the game is set, and you could actually encounter characters from the films as you played the game. Um, But there were a lot of issues people had with this game. There were some gameplay issues, there were some story issues, there were people who were very upset that the Jedi system was kind of weird in Star Wars galaxies in order to be a Jedi. You know, keep in mind, set during the original trilogy, not a lot of Jedi in that original trilogy. You essentially had Luke, and then you had, you know, Darth Vader, the Dark Lord of the Sith, and you had Yoda. And then as far as you knew, that was, that was it. Those, mm-hmm. well, Obi-Wan in the first film, but then he dies, spoiler alert. And so, um, <laughs> you didn't have that many Jedi running around. I mean, the idea was that Darth Vader had gone and, and pretty much killed all the rest of them. So, because, you know, they wanted the game to be true to the lore of Star Wars as much as possible, they did not want it to be easy to go out and create a Jedi. Because if it were, then everyone would go out and create a Jedi. And then you'd suddenly have a Star Wars universe where a 100,000 Jedi are running around. It wouldn't feel like Star Wars. So what they did was they created a system that was uh, difficult to discover how to unlock the Jedi. It was almost a uh, – it seemed almost random. Like there was this list of criteria you had to complete and the list was never made public. But uh, – uh, so the game launched in 2003. The first – The first person to unlock the Jedi slot character did it within, I think, four months after the game launched. Uh, They later on changed the requirements for becoming a Jedi and made it a quest that you could take so that you would have a very specific pathway you could take in order to become a Jedi because people were saying – Star Wars, the coolest people in Star Wars are the Jedi. They're they they have, they're the ones that have all the really cool powers. They have the lightsabers. These guys are awesome, and you're making it impossible for me to find out how to play one. Mm-hmm. So it was a very frustrating experience for people. Well, these problems continued uh, among other issues, including things like reefers and cheaters, that sort of stuff. And the game was ultimately shut down in 2011, partially because – there was another Star Wars game on the horizon, but we'll get to that in a little bit.
0: Yeah, I was a little surprised that you didn't mention Dark Age of Camelot in 2001.
1: Well, that's – it's because the the Star Wars Galaxies was originally announced in 2000. Oh, I see. I see. I see. But yeah, in 2001, Dark Age of Camelot came out and that was uh, – that was an interesting game too, because that focused a lot on player versus player gameplay.
0: Mm-hmm. And it was specifically set within the, the world of King Arthur. Yes. So, Arthurian legend.
1: Yeah, another fantasy. But, um, but yeah. Yeah, the, but a
0: spe- very specific fantasy though.
1: That's true. The, the interesting thing about this is that you had games where player versus player combat was possible because a lot of people wanted to have the ability to test their characters against other people's characters and play right. against them. Mm-hmm. There were other games that really stressed uh, player cooperation. And some did not even allow player versus player interaction. You had to you, – you could not attack another player. Uh, some games – tried to split the difference where within certain regions there was no way you could attack another player. Mm-hmm. If you ventured outside of those regions, outside of those safe zones, then you could attack or be attacked by other players. And uh, then there was another way of doing this where games would create specific servers where if you would log on to certain servers, they'd be player-friendly in the sense that you are not going to be attacked by any other player because it that's the kind of server it is. And other servers are player versus player servers where it's anything goes. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, lots of different experimentation during this time to find out what, what's the right way of going about it. And to this day, companies are still experimenting with that. Mm-hmm.
0: It also had, uh, the, uh, the people in the game, the characters in the game, uh, as part of a basically specific tribes. Yeah. Um, basically the, the, uh, the English, the Norse and the Celtic groups when and each of them had specific attributes at which they excelled. Yep. Um for example, the uh the Celts were particularly good at magic. Um and um the uh the Norse were better at uh, melee combat. Um and that's something again these systems if you'll notice these systems are the kinds of things that are pretty common across all of the the current MMORPGs but it's sort of like they're being rolled out uh game by game and people are, are um they're sort of picking up to the point where it's they take a b c d and e where before they were just sort of a well this is an okay game but look at this one thing it's so cool. Yeah. Um
1: yeah, t- anyway. 2001 was also when Anarchy Online Ah, yes. As a science fiction-based game. So breaking the mold. I mean, Star Wars Galaxies had not come out yet. It had been announced, but it hadn't come out. And you could also argue that Star Wars is, in fact, a fantasy, not science fiction. I would not argue against that. I think it's both. I think that when most of the explanations for the technology within Star Wars really boil down to magic, it pretty much is just fantasy. Well, well, yeah, but the thing – well, anyway. A lightsaber is a magic sword. I mean, it really is. but uh, uh, Yeah, but, but, but
0: blasters and, and land speeders are technology, which is – One can argue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. OK. All right. It's got the trappings of science fiction. It's a fantasy. Exactly. So Anarchy Online was science fiction-based. Uh, it had some pretty major technical issues when it launched and had particular problems handling large loads of players. So if a lot of people tried to play on one server, there were a lot of issues with lag and and, and server stability. So it had some issues – when it launched, uh, there's still a lot of people who really loved that game, but there were a lot of problems with it. It, it did have
0: several expansions, though. Yes, it and, did. And this is when this is the period in which you started to see a lot of that.
1: Yeah, EverQuest was infamous for the expansions that it, I think yes. 16 different expansions came out for Everquest. Yeah. So that's, you know, and th- these were ways to increase the appeal of the game to the long-time players who had pretty much achieved everything they could do within the the base game. Yeah. Now why why would they keep playing? And remember these games are based on not just a purchase price but a monthly subscription. Right. And so you want to try and keep those players around as long as possible. Well, one way to do that is to release expansions that Continue to engage players even after they have completed, you know, the uh, a massive percentage of the base game. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in 2002, we saw the launch of Final Fantasy XI
0: online.
1: Uh, yeah, so it launched in uh, in Japan on the PlayStation 2, and at that time, uh, so it was available on multiple platforms. In fact, that was a big deal. It was a mul- massively multiplayer online game that was supporting platforms across various. Kinds of machines. So it wasn't, you know, you didn't have to just play the game on one particular computer. In fact, the same servers were supporting the game for multiple platforms.
0: And you might say, well, you know, so what's the big deal about consoles? Well, keep in mind that consoles, for the most part, don't necessarily have keyboards. And so if you want to talk, this is part of the, the online multiplayer experience. You want to communicate with your, your teammates to achieve whatever goals, to slay the dragon or to break into the fortress or whatever that you're trying to accomplish. Or to, you need to irritate be able to, them. Or to irritate people, uh, taunt people. You need to be able to communicate with one another. Yeah. And so now they're starting to figure out ways, convenient ways to do that, to make that happen.
1: Right. In 2003, uh, and by the way, there are a lot of uh, games that come come out over in Asia that fall into this category that I'm not really going to talk about. I'm talking mostly about the ones that were played in the Western Hemisphere, Mm -hmm. um, because that's where the majority of our listeners are from. Uh, But in 2003, Ubisoft launches a game called Shadowbane. Ah, mm -hmm. And Shadowbane, the interesting thing to me about Shadowbane was that the idea behind it was that the game's events would not be pre-generated quests, because for a lot of these MMORPGs, you create a character, there are certain quests within the world that exist and have existed for everyone Mm -hmm. that you can go and complete. So your buddy can go and they get a quest from this person, hey, this inn is full of rats, I need you to clean it out. And your buddy goes in and cleans out all the rats. And then you go up to that same person, that person says, hey, this inn is full of rats, I need you to clean them out. Then you can go and clean out all the rats. Uh, Shadowbane was different it depended upon the players to generate the content and the events within the game that would affect everyone, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's also putting a lot of responsibility on the backs of the players. So uh, I can't tell you exactly how well it works because I never played Shadowbane. I just thought it was interesting to try and go about making a game in that way. I have played in games where the game content was supposed to be player-generated, and i got to tell you, for every cool event that happens, there's about 20 hours of nothing happening. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I, one, one phenomenon we didn't mention, and I just, I, it's really not core to what we're talking about, but um, just to show the popularity of, of uh, MMORPGs, in the early 2000s is also when we, we start talking about people trading real money for stuff in games. Yes, And spawning its own economy. Of course, yeah. that, that became a problem. For a lot of people, you know, gold farming, as they call it. Yeah,
1: so you had – it's kind of crazy. It's coming
0: across many platforms and many games.
1: Yeah, you had people willing to pay real money to get in-game resources to make their players stronger within the game, which is kind of interesting because you think you could be using that real money to get you real resources to make you happier in real life. But but, but people were deriving so much pleasure from the games themselves that they wanted – to uh to to deck out their characters with the best stuff that they could possibly get. And in some cases it wasn't like some cases it was so that they could show off, some cases it was so that they could take advantage of other players more effectively. Some people just wanted, you know, they really liked playing the game and they just wanted to have the the coolest stuff that they could get for their character.
0: And they really didn't have the time or the inclination to go get it themselves. Yeah, cuz
1: sometimes you're talking about items that would drop Only if you killed a certain monster and not always, you know, it it wouldn't always drop. So, in other words, you might have to face off against this particularly powerful creature and use a lot of your resources, like health potions or whatever, Mm -hmm. in order to take the creature down. And then the creature drops items, and it may even be that, you know, it's only a certain percentage of the time will it drop the item you're specifically looking for. To make it more complicated, you would have games where other players could pick up an item when it dropped. And so it may only drop that one item, but then there's 50 people all trying to grab it at the same time. And there's only one instance of that item. Well, then, you know, that would cause problems too. Because you have people who would camp out waiting for a monster to regenerate in order for them to go in and try and farm out this particular item. And it, for some people, it was worthwhile. For others, they just said, this doesn't make the game fun if I'm just You know, competing against all these people to wait for this one monster to load so I can get this one item. You know, this feels more like work than a game. And that became a problem for some people. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. still a problem today, depending upon how the game handles items. There are a lot of games now that will drop items that are specific only to that one character so that each character that is participating in, say, a raid, all has access to the same general stuff. Uh, but if they take it, it does not get removed from the other person's game. Mm-hmm. So if I, if we are banding together and we take down a monster and that monster drops 20 gold, you get to pick up 20 gold. I get to pick up 20 gold and and it's not like the 20 gold only exists for the two of us. Right. So uh, anyway, moving on to 2004, which was a big year in MMORPGs.
0: Again, I, I'm surprised you didn't mention EVE Online, which also debuted in two thousand.
1: Yeah, I thought about that and then I didn't. Do okay. you want to say anything about Eve
0: Online? Well, Eve Online is is still very popular. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it, it's made by a European company um, named CCP Games, and uh, very predominantly male too, from what I understand. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's a big, um, still very very popular with uh, space exploration and basically space combat. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in the Star Wars games, you might actually be a character. And, you know, on your feet, I, most of what I've seen of EVE Online is uh, space-based. So, you know, you have your ship and you're doing stuff um, and there's there's interstellar commerce and, and that kind of thing. Um, obviously, I've never played, but it's – I do know some people who do and they, they really love it. So. Yeah, nice. Uh, and it's, it's got a big following, which is why I thought, you know, you should mention it.
1: It's, you know, always, or again, one of us should. nice to see a game that does not necessarily just fall into the uh, sword and sorcery. That's true. Um, uh realm. So next we have in 2004 three games that three among the many games that came out three big ones. Uh, EverQuest 2, which, you know, because EverQuest even with the expansion packs was starting to show its age, and EverQuest 2 was an opportunity for well, to sell more copies of games for one thing, but also to update the the graphics and game engine beyond what an expansion pack could do. Right. And so EverQuest 2 launches City of Heroes Ah yes, launches. So now you've got the superhero, supervillain kind of g- games launching, which was a a, a neat um, a, a neat expansion on MMORPGs, and then the big game that uh, is on the tip of everyone's tongue when they talk about MMORPGs, World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. which I think you cannot ex- describe anything other than phenomenal success. Oh yes. I mean it was it was a true phenomenon. There are over ten million people playing that game now. Remember when Ultima Online launched? It was a big deal when they hit a hundred thousand subscribers. Now we're talking about ten million people playing this game.
0: Yeah, and it even it even uh, I know that the largest number I've seen attributed to it was a couple from a couple years ago. Now uh, we're recording this in in twenty twelve, where they had hit twelve million at yeah. one point, maybe even thirteen. So, but it has declined. Uh, in the past year or two,
1: but not—it's uh, still going. Yeah, there, there are plenty of people who still play. Oh yes, and, uh, absolutely. And the expansion packs have really continued the the development of that world so much so that they destroyed it at one point. Cataclysm completely uh, uh, turned the world upside down, and uh, it upset some players because things changed so dramatically. But the whole point of it was that the player base for for WoW. Was, uh, made up a lot, a lot of the player base were, were old time players who had been playing forever. And, you know, you have to keep making things interesting and adding a new realm every now and then and, and upping the level cap by five only goes so far. Yeah. And so there have been some calculated risks of really shaking the game up in order to keep long time players around and interested because now they've got You know, even places that seemed familiar are now new to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, for new players, it was a little confusing. (laughs) (laughs) So you'd ask like a level 78 character, Hey, how do I get to such and such? And like, uh, well, I can tell you how you used to be able to get there. (laughs) 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 I don't know how you get there now. Um, take a left at the barrel. Should have taken a the left in Albuquerque. Uh, so yeah, the, those games, all three of those games, were made a big impact. And you know, it was at this point that you really started to see some real competition between games because there are only so many gamers out there who want to play online role playing games. And, um, and no, yeah, and subscriptions can start to rack up. I mean these are not necessarily cheap. It may be somewhere in the realm of, you know, 20 to 30 dollars <laughs> a month. <Realm>. Uh-huh, <laughs> 20 to 30 dollars a month to play. And you know, you start playing multiple games. You only have so much time to dedicate to each game. So the competition was pretty fierce. World of Warcraft ran with this and did really well. Uh 2008 there was a game that launched that uh, – you know, and other games, again, launched between 2004 and 2008. But like in 2000- Guild Wars? Yeah, Guild Wars is a good one. Uh, that's actually a really good example. Or D&D Online. D&D Online, which t- changed from – and it's not the only one. In fact, the one I'm about to mention also did this. D&D Online and Age of Conan, which oh, yeah. launched in mm-hmm. 2008, mm-hmm. both of those were games that you would pay for originally. Yeah. And you did a monthly subscription. Both of those games also came out with free-to-play models where you could play the game for free, uh, but you would not have uh, access to all the content. Mm -hmm. And uh, depending upon the way the game model was, like in Age of Conan, you could switch from a free uh, account to a paid account, and then you would get access to all the premium content. D&D Online had a system where you could pay money for in-game credits and use those in-game credits to unlock areas of the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it it was a experimenting with different ways to get players engaged with the game and uh, enough so that they'd be willing to pay to play the whole thing. And I don't know how successful that was, honestly. I mean, it's and it's not the only time we've seen that, too. We've also seen online role-playing games where if you pay real money, you get access to in-game resources. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also carried over into casual games. We've seen that when we had our episode about casual games. We talked about games where you can pay cash to get an advantage in the game. Freemium. Freemium. And uh it's also a fairly controversial approach because uh you've got gamers who are saying this takes skill out of it. If I just have deep enough pockets, I can get an advantage over everyone else in the game and it has no bearing on whether I play the game well or not. And uh you know there's something to that, but guess what? That's what real life is about too. <laughs> I hate to tell you. But <laughs> real life uh, if you have a lot of money, you can make up for a a, a basic lack of skills. <laughs> As it turns out, you can hire people who have skills for you. Uh, and then I wanted to end my discussion anyway on a game that launched in 2012. Um, okay. Sort of like tail into 2011 into into 2012. It's a little game called Star Wars: The Old Republic. Ah yes. We have finally reached the one MMORPG I actually play. All right. I have not played any other MMORPG. I've seen them developed. I've, you know, I've played on someone else's account just to get a feel for it, but I've never actually got an account myself. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I did play a little bit of D&D online for about a couple of months, but. Well, you, you wrote an article for the site. Yes. And as that, I created uh, an account so I could play it so I could get a better understanding of how it worked. So Star Wars The Old Republic. Uh, the reason – there are a couple of reasons why I wanted to play it. One is that my hatred for Star Wars has not gotten that uh, out of hand yet. <laughs> the prequels really did a number on me, people. Yes, don't, they did. Don't get me started. Please don't. Uh, but but I still – despite all that, I still love the Star Wars universe. And I really love the Knights of the Old Republic games, which are set up almost 4,000 years before the original trilogy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Star Wars The Old Republic is set about 3,500 years before the original trilogy. So they're – are no characters from the original trilogy or any of the the Star Wars movies that are in uh, the games. Right. The games you're you're, a, you're you're encountering you know ancestors several generations removed from anyone in the the film series. The nice thing about that is that you don't have to worry about impacting the world so much that the movies could not have happened. Right right because that was one of the the problems is that you want this rich world that Lucas created that people find so interesting and compelling but they didn't want to create it in such a way that if you did one set of actions you you uh, invalidate what happens in the movies because then you've just invalidated the reason why everyone loves it in the first place. So that's a tricky balance. Well, by setting it 3,500 years before the events of the films, you kind of take that causation away. And uh, the Knights of the Old Republic games were a lot of fun for me. So I wanted to play this and I ended up getting an account. And I do play uh, – uh, the char- my main character, in case you're all wondering, is an Imperial agent. Uh you can play either as the Imperial side or the rebel side. It's not the same as the, the movies. And on depending on which side you're you're on, you can play light side or dark side. Mm-hmm. So you could be a light side imperial agent if you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not. <laughs> I play the Shock. dark side. <laughs> yeah. Every time I can I can I play a I choose the dark side option. Um and so anyway, it's a really fun game set in the Star Wars universe, and uh I've been having a blast with it. And uh, it makes me think that if I had had a broadband connection earlier, I probably would have gotten into MMORPGs earlier. Uh, now, the way I play it, I play it more as a single-player kind of experience, and I only occasionally team up with people because mm-hmm. I just haven't made that many friends on uh on Star Wars The Old Republic yet. But who knows? Maybe after this podcast goes live – Folks will track me down and be like, hey, man, I'll help you out. You are having trouble taking that Mandalorian down? And I will say, yes. Yes, I am. That guy is tough and he's really irritating me.
0: (laughs) So, uh, yeah, there there are scads of other games that we haven't mentioned. Oh, yes. Uh, Some very high-profile games. Dozens. Like
1: Halo games and – yeah, and there are other Elder games Scrolls. that are there are other games that are massively multiplayer. In fact, I'd argue the Halo games fit in this where there's not role playing involved, but it yeah. is a massively multiplayer online game. Yes. So you can have a lot of people playing at once even though they're not necessarily role playing.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny because I think in in a way uh some of them some of it's fuzzy to be honest. Yeah. Um there are different degrees of the role playing involved. Yes. Um when you're playing you is that really playing a role?
1: Yeah, yeah. So so, and again, there are people who get into the role playing, and there are people who despise the role playing. Yeah. And sometimes you'll have companies create servers just for role players, so that the role players can be all, you know, the hardcore gamers might say that's all hippy dippy. So the the role players can be all hippy dippy on their own servers, and everyone who's just you know who just wants to play the game can be on their servers. Uh, I like a balance between the two, so I'm somewhere in the middle. I okay. don't. I don't really identify myself with either group. So anyway, that's kind of a, uh, a bird's eye view of the history of MMORPGs. We really have uh, Dungeons and Dragons to thank for it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that the games would have uh, would have developed on their own without it, but that was truly an inspiration. And D and D is just the pants and and yeah. And role playing games in general go well beyond just D and D. Oh yes, you can find tons and tons of them. Some of them are out of print now. But there have been games ranging across all genres, from horror to science fiction, uh, mystery, just about everything you can think about. There is a role-playing game out there that fits it. So guys, if you have any suggestions for topics that we should tackle in future episodes, please let us know. You can send us an email. Our address is TechStuff at discovery.com. Or let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW. And Chris and I will game with you again really soon.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.